Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. And I'm Jaleesa Arson. Jaleesa, what was the last movie you saw in the theater before COVID? I cannot remember the last movie that I saw before COVID, but I know the most recent movie I've seen was Dune. And what did you think? You know, I really liked it. It was really pretty. We watched it on IMAX, and that, I think, is the only way to watch it um, because it's just, like, the sounds and, uh, like, it's very cinematic. I know nothing about the book, so (laughs) that's why I think I liked it because I think people who, who have read the book have mixed feelings about it, but I, uh, I loved it. The last movie I saw before COVID was the first or second week of March in 2020. It was me and Monica. She brought sterile wipes. We brought snacks and plastic bags. <laughs> we're like, we're so cool. We're so good. We're so ahead of the game. And I just went and saw, and I've always loved going to the movies, but I went and saw the Bond movie, which full disclosure, mm. I'd never seen a Bond movie before. But Mm. I have to tell you, the vibe in the movie theater was about the best thing I've ever seen. Everyone was just like giddy. And I mean, it was an upstate movie theater. So the ads were like local lawyers and plumbers and shit, which is amazing. But it was everyone was like talking to each other and having such a good time. And so I can't also things have iterated a lot. My movie theater up here got like the reclining seats. And so anyway, I'm very Mm. excited to go see House of Gucci. I think that's my next one. Ooh, I'm excited to go see uh, Encanto, the new Disney movie that's <gasps> that coming looks out so good. next week. I am so excited, and like a couple of my friends are in the movie, so even more of a reason for me to go watch it. I'm excited. So you're going to be with me for the next couple of weeks as co-hosts. So we're going to have to discuss after the holidays if all we the have movies, seen our yes. movies. I all have the movies. I all I have an AMC movie pass, so I am at the movies multiple times a month. I love movies. It's literally how I celebrated getting my booster. I'm like, I'm triple threat Moderna and I am going to see a movie finally. So anyway, it brought me such joy. I wanted to kick off the show by talking about it. Yay. Today, we're joined by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Julissa Arce, Megan Gailey, and Grace Parra to tackle the following questions. Is Alex Jones screwed? Could Democrats be doing better on immigration? What's going on in Cuba? And is being a historic first a good thing? I am thrilled to have activist and author Julissa Arce joining me for the next three weeks. Julissa, what's the name of your book and is it available for presale? Funny you should ask. The name (laughs) of the book is called You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. And it is 100% available for pre-order. If you go to my website, juliesarsa.com, there are links to indie bookstores that have signed copies. So you can pre-order from those indie bookstores. And I know I sound like a white girl, so I can't wait to read it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, it, it fits everybody. It's like, you know, if you've ever been told you sound like a white girl and you're not a white girl, and if you are a white girl and you sound like a white girl then it's for you too. It's for everybody. I feel like it's, there's lessons for everybody in the covers of this wonderful book. Um, okay, so news. News this week was like a mixed bag, an interesting bag of hot trash usually, except there's one, there's one story I particularly enjoyed and a headline I can't get enough of. Alex Jones liable by default in all Sandy Hook defamation suits. So a superior court in Connecticut granted a sweeping victory to the families of eight people killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, suing the far-right broadcaster and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and his InfoWars media outlet for defamation. So for anyone who hasn't kept up on this, Alex Fuck That Guy Jones for years has spread bogus theories that the shooting that killed 20 first graders and six educators was a government-led plot to confiscate Americans' firearms and that the victims' families were actors in the scheme. So anyway, this motherfucker, he's going to have to pay up. He's liable. So juries in both states where he's been sued will decide how much Mr. Jones should pay the families in damages atop court costs. The trials are scheduled for next year. 
this was some good news. I don't know that there's anyone more repugnant than this asshole. Mm. And the fact that like, Julissa, can you think of anyone who's come up with like a sicker lie? I really can't think of anybody. I mean, to, to lie about the death of anybody is disgusting, but to lie about the death of first graders is a whole nother level of evil. And I really hope that the juries who are deciding how much he should pay up make him pay so much money that he goes bankrupt, that he can't even run InfoWars and that InfoWars disappears forever and ever and never comes back. I couldn't agree more. Um, Okay, so here are some other news stories. Jaleesa, Democrats seem to be trying to get some immigration reform into Build Back Better. Can you tell us how it's going? I can tell you how it's going. I'm going to pull out my notebook here with some notes that I took. I love a prepared bitch. So for context, the last time that uh, the U.S. passed any kind of immigration reform was in 1986 uh, by Republican President Ronald Reagan. And since then, there have been many attempts. Uh, In 2001, there was the DREAM Act that was introduced, which would have allowed young undocumented people a path to citizenship. I was undocumented in 2001 and a freshman in college and was very, very happy about the possibility of not being undocumented anymore. Then it was in 2010. And then, of course, the Gang of Eight bill in 2013, very famously with Marco Rubio. And all of those times, it has failed for different reasons. And I want to point out that sometimes when people talk about undocumented immigrants, I hear things like, well, you should get in the back of the line, like you should do it the right way. And I just want to emphasize that there is no line. That line is a myth. That is what immigration reform would do. It would create a line so people can become documented. Um, And so what is happening now is that we know that no standalone bill would pass because of Republicans and also some Dems that we know and hate, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And so what the rest of Democrats are doing, and I do want to give some credit to Democrats, is that they've had to get really creative. And how do we pass immigration reform? How do we make good on a promise that we made and that we have made for many, many, many years? And so they try to look at reconciliation, which is you know a long, complicated process that I won't get into. Um, but where we are right now is that they've tried to include immigration reform in the Build Back Better plan. And... They started with citizenship for people who came before 2011. That was struck down by the Senate parliamentarian. Then it went down to let's at least give people green cards. So not citizenship, but permanent residency. And once again, the Senate parliamentarian shut that down. And so what we're down to now is giving undocumented people protection from deportation and a work permit. And that's it. Just those two things. But even that is uncertain whether or not those two things will actually end up in the Build Back Better plan. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that the Senate parliamentarian is not an elected official. They are sort of an advice giver in a way. And so Democrats can overlook what she says. They don't have to do whatever it is that she says. And all of this to say that, you know, it the average amount of time that undocumented people have been in this country is 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, built lives here. We have children who are U.S. citizens now. We've built businesses. We pay taxes. Like, we contribute to the society and to culture. And most importantly, like, we're human beings. And I say we, even though I am a citizen now, but I was undocumented for more than 10 years. And so I very much know what that experience is like. And I know what it's like to have your entire life hanging on the balance of a bill. And I urge people to call their Congress people, their senators, and tell them that they want this included in the Build Back Better plan. So that's what's going on. And Jaleesa, if it's not included in the Build Back Better plan, Aaron and I have had multiple conversations about how complicated reconciliation is. And Mm -hmm. the reason the parliamentarian says it shouldn't be in reconciliation is because reconciliation is a budgetary vehicle. And what the parliamentarian is saying is that this is a policy issue. It's not a budgetary issue. So here's the question. Is there another way? Should President Biden be looking at executive actions to help solve this problem? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is her quote. 
the Senate parliamentarian said, there are reasons that people risk their lives to come to this country to escape religious and political persecution, famine, war, unspeakable violence, and lack of opportunity in their home countries cannot be measured in federal dollars. So here she is, you know, in one part of that sentence, speaking to the very real reasons why people have to immigrate to the United States and then saying it can't be measured in federal dollars. But in fact, it can be measured in federal dollars because we can measure how much uh, it would add to the GDP, would undocumented people be given a path to citizenship. We can measure in federal dollars the fact that undocumented people have contributed $100 billion into the Social Security Fund over a 10-year period, that they pay between 10 and $12 million in state and local taxes every year. Um, and by the way, we should also look at how much money the U.S. has spent meddling in other countries that then create conditions for people to immigrate. And so I do think that it can be measured in federal dollars. And, you know, the reality is that Given the makeup of Congress, a standalone bill is not going to pass. And yes, Biden can certainly look at executive action, um, but we know how scrutinized executive action is, right? I mean, you know probably better than anybody else, like DACA is an executive action that Obama passed, uh, and we know how it was scrutinized, torn apart, uh, taken into a million little pieces by the Trump administration. And so Yes, like it's temporary relief if there is some sort of executive action. The the question is, what kind of executive action, given all the challenges there have been to something that was even as narrow as DACA? So, I, I mean, I really think this is this is it for for this for this Congress, um, unless we have some sort of miracle happening in, in the midterms. Um, I think this is going to be it. But like you said, people should keep pressure on their members of Congress to let them know that this issue is not something that is going to be sidelined yet again. Um, yes. Lastly, I've noticed the hashtag SOS Cuba trending on Twitter. Julissa, what is the latest on the protests over there regarding the shortages of food and medicine? Yeah. Um, you know, what, what's going on in Cuba, it's, um, it's a long time coming. We, of course, know that Cuba has been under a... Uh, regime that was uh, really uh, terrible to its own people. And there's, of course, a lot of politics involved with with Cuba and the sanctions and U.S.-imposed sanctions. But what is going on right now is that because of COVID, there have been even more shortages of food and of medicine. And um, Cuban leaders have not wanted to accept any kind of help. Um, and people are finally fed up. Um, and, you know, it should be noted that a lot of Cubans for a long time have feared this kind of protesting because there are real consequences to people protesting in Cuba, huh? death included. But I think people are sort of uh, fed up with it. they're at a point where they have no other choice but to take to the streets to protest. So there have been as many as 10,000 Cubans in towns across the country taking to the streets. Um, but the Cuban government has responded in a way that we would expect that kind of regime to respond, which is that they've cut off the internet, they have um, sent police, they have brutalized protesters. Um, but I think that Cubans will continue to protest despite what they're facing because they've had enough. And I do think that it is really great to see a people standing up for themselves who have not always done so because of fear. And those fears are still very much there. But, you know, I stand with the Cuban people. And if people want to learn more, there's a great report that uh, Paola Ramos did on Vice News. Um, it is really incredible to meet some of these people behind this protest. And has the Cuban president done anything? Are things getting any better? He did say that they would now be permitting people to bring unlimited amounts of food and medicine into Cuba from abroad. Um, and it does seem like the protests are uh, scaling down a little bit. And I don't know if that's because people are happy with what's right. going on or because they haven't been able to organize because the Internet's <laughs> down and, you know, police are everywhere. Um, right. So I don't know, you know, which is which. Um, but I, I hope that the food and the medicine actually get to the people who need it most in Cuba. 
Okay. So on that note, we're not going to roast anybody this week because we're going to do some positive shit. Jaleesa, is there anybody that you would like to toast? Yes. I would like to toast the Harvard Crimson, the nation's oldest college newspaper, uh, because they are getting ready to welcome their first uh, Latina president in nearly 150 year history. Um, her name is Raquel Coronel Uribe. She's a student that is majoring in history and literature. She also beat cancer when she was 16. Right. So like this woman is amazing. Uh, she's so powerful and strong. Her parents are um, immigrants from Cuba who in their own right are really incredible um, journalists. So I am just so happy that the Harvard Crimson finally um, ushered its first Latina president. Um, and I'm really excited for the things she's going to do with the paper and um, beyond. So here is to the Harvard Crimson for finally getting it right. See, that's the good news that we can use. Um, I want to yes. toast some of my favorite white ladies. Some of my favorite white ladies, too. Yes, I mean, they're all of our favorite <laughs> white ladies. Britney Spears, Taylor Swift, Jessica Simpson, big weeks. Britney is free. Taylor crushed SNL and her 10-minute version of All Too Well has gotten Dion Warwick to ask Jake Gyllenhaal to send Taylor her scarf back. And Jessica Simpson has regained 100% control of her name and brand. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we're back, I'll be joined by chair of the Progressive Caucus and returning hysteria champ, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Welcome to Hysteria, chairperson of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a woman approaching folk hero status in my book, a woman I've spoken in the rain in Iowa with, representing Washington's 7th Congressional District. Please welcome Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Best introduction ever. Thank you. And I remember that rain-soaked day in Iowa. I mean, is there any other way to be in Iowa? I don't know, but we had a great time. We sure did. Um, Congresswoman, it has been a long couple of months. And post-Trump, I think a lot of folks thought, okay, we're here, we're good, we made it. But I think the things we thought would be easy have been exceedingly hard, like getting paid leave here in America, for example. So last week here on Hysteria, we tried to go over the great things that the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act would do for listeners. And when you hear the punditry around Build Back Better, it's usually cast as this social safety net, um, which I think is very confusing to people and not entirely accurate. Can you talk about some of the things you're fighting for in Build Back Better and why we need them so desperately? Yes, absolutely. And the first thing I will say is people think about the infrastructure bill as the jobs bill, but actually the Build Back Better Act creates way more jobs than the infrastructure bill. I mean, they both are really important, but I think it's important to realize this is also a jobs bill and it is jobs largely for women and for folks of color. Um, and it benefits so many millions of people across the country. So what does it have in it? First of all, the thing that makes me most excited is universal childcare and universal pre-K. I mean, this is... Yes. Uh, phenomenal. Can you imagine, Alyssa, waking up in the morning and knowing that your childcare costs were cut in half, that uh, most families are not going to have to pay more than 7% of their income on childcare? It is a crippling cost, and it stops people from doing so many things, including stopping a lot of women from going back to work. And so uh, that is one critically important, well, two critically important pieces, because for pre-K, Every single three and four-year-old is going to get universal pre-K. Really phenomenal. Also, really important, this has a provision for elder care, $150 billion, that will go to making sure that our seniors and our most vulnerable folks with disabilities can actually be 
um, at home and looked after through community-based care, home and community-based care in their homes with their loved ones. And there's an 800,000 person waiting list right now um, for seniors and for those who are vulnerable to be able to get that home and community-based care. This bill will finally take on that giant issue. So that's all within the care economy. Now, paid leave is something you just mentioned. Um, we should have had 12 weeks of paid leave. That is what we started with. Um, that was cut all the way back. Now it's in the House bill at four weeks, um, which is a start. But even that, Alyssa, we're going to have to fight for because there is somebody in the Senate, uh, one man who does not want it. And so I am hoping for the women of the Senate to fight for this and really, you know, men and women, but people to fight for it because we all know why it's so important and how the United States is one of only six countries in the world that doesn't have paid leave, which is so incredibly embarrassing and distressing and destructive to um, to families across the country. So that is also in our bill. Then we've got health care. There's health care uh, to cut the cost of health care for families across the country. There's a number of things. First of all, most important to me, we're, we're finally taking on big pharma. We are going to cut the cost of prescription drugs, not as much as you or I would like, but there is a significant provision that would cap the cost of insulin um, to $35 that would cap uh, the cost of a few other uh, important drugs and um, also would cap out-of-pocket costs. So that's really, really important. Um, also, we extend the subsidies for both the ACA, but also for states that had Republican governors who were intransigent in not expanding Medicaid. And so we're cutting the cost of health care for everyone across the country. Third, we are going to, and this is so important, all of these, by the way, are Progressive Caucus priorities. The third one is climate change. We are going to cut uh, emissions significantly so that we can get to the goals that we've set forward for 2030 and 2050 and take on climate change. But what's really important, Alyssa, is we're doing it, of course, with a half a trillion dollar investment, but um, by also investing 40% of those funds into environmental justice, what we call the Justice 40. Um, so that means the most disproportionately burdened communities by climate change and the effects of climate change are going to get 40% of the resources, and that includes a civilian climate corps for our young people to really be out there doing good work and saving the planet. Fourth, we are um, we are finally going to uh, address housing. This was something really important to us. It is a racial justice issue. It will be the biggest investment in public housing ever in our history. One hundred and fifty billion dollars to do the repairs on public housing that are desperately needed and to expand the ability to build more affordable housing and to access those units for those who desperately need to get off the streets and into homes. And finally, very important to me, as you know, is the issue of immigration. We are finally going to do something, not as much as we would want, for, but for millions of immigrants, we're going to provide them with a, a status that would allow them to stay and would allow many of them to get uh, green cards and to ultimately become citizens if they have relatives in the country. So um, that one, of course, is subject to the parliamentarian, and we're worried about that, but we are going to do everything we can to fight to keep that in. So... That's a lot of stuff that I feel like we could really use to be, I don't know, not the saddest country in the world, essentially. Like, it's it's kind of wild when you think about, like, how the GOP tries to paint this as this, like, socialist bill when some of this stuff is literally across the globe. I mean, I think paid leave is, like, what us in Papua New Guinea, that we don't, we're the ones that don't have paid leave. So I have heard people talk about Build Back Better as a moral imperative. Do you think passing it is also a political imperative? I think it's a moral imperative, an economic imperative, and a political imperative. I think it is all three of those things. And we'll start with the political because you asked me about it. And look, I think that what we have to do as Democrats, now that we have the House, the Senate, and the White House, and voters 
came out in record numbers and and not all not all the same voters as before, right? We had a lot of black women in Georgia and immigrants in Arizona and suburban moms uh, across the country that came out to deliver us the House, the Senate and the White House. And we have to do the things that actually make them feel differently about their lives and livelihoods. And the infrastructure bill is amazing. We are going to get roads and bridges and public transit and many other wonderful things out of that. But Alyssa, what good is that road or the bridge if you can't even get out of your house because you don't have childcare? So if there is a way that we can have people wake up and feel differently about their lives, that is what Build Back Better does. And that is what will deliver the votes for us in the 2022 elections and the 2024 elections. People have to see that there is a massive shift in their ability to not just survive, but to thrive. And I think that's what Build Back Better does. So a lot of the criticism or deflection that we have heard is, oh, inflation, inflation, inflation. This is going to be terrible for inflation. Is that true? No, it's not true. And it's really frustrating when people keep talking about inflation because it's mostly the talking heads that talk about inflation. But the reality is, and there's multiple realities. The first reality is my constituents are saying to me, yeah, I'm worried about rising costs. You know what those rising costs are that I'm worried about? Childcare, housing, um, all of these other things that really decimate my fixed budget that I'm on. And so I think that while people are, we have to pay attention to the economic pain that people are under and gas prices and the cost of eggs and the cost of diapers. Those are serious costs that people are seeing going up. But I think what right. we have to realize is that Build Back Better is going to cut the cost of childcare in half. It's going to cut the cost of healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs. And so if there are some costs that are going to continue to rise because the supply chain is going to take a while to work through, COVID is going to take a while to work through, the economic uh, worst economic downturn we've been in in recent history is going to take a while to work through, then what we need to do is deliver cuts in costs in other parts of people's budgets. And that's what we're doing with Build Back Better. Secondly, I think the inflationary hype is a lot of, you know, there is also a rise in wages. And so the actual costs that people are paying that are higher is quite small. I'm not saying, I I still think we should care about it, but it's quite small. And I think when we keep hyping inflation as this big fear when it isn't, we just contribute to people's fears about their economic security, whether they're feeling it today or not. And then finally, 17 Nobel Prize winning economists and all of the ratings agencies today came out and said that Build Back Better is not going to increase inflation. It's not going to have an inflationary impact. In fact, what it does is it invests in building our economy, in getting more people back to work, and in making sure that our economy is continuing to grow and thrive. So it seems also like very positive information of, that we could use about the Build Back Better bill. So here's here's a, maybe it's a catty question, I don't know. How bad is it in the halls of Congress? Is there as much drama as we see? And I'm putting that in air quotes. Or is a lot of it being manufactured by the media because they love a food fight? Are the Democrats in disarray or is negotiating actually just part of doing business. Negotiating is just part of doing business. And I think the 24-7 news cycle looks for and feeds on any small thing that's happening. And most big negotiations don't take place in public. And yet all of our negotiating is taking place in public and everyone's hanging on everyone's little word and press conference and this and that and the other thing. And that's why I've been so, you know, I've been very disciplined about always wanting to talk about what's in the bill because it's not about some top line number. It's about what is in the bill and how do we talk about that rather than the process or the number. And um, and so I, I really don't think that it is uh, as bad as people say. I do think that there are, you know, when you have very slim margins and you have a wide diversity of opinions and districts, you are going to have some differences. And, and we all are working to come together and to build trust and to 
um, overcome those differences. And I think that's what I'm very proud of the Progressive Caucus for. We have not criticized any. I have been very disciplined about not criticizing anyone because at the end of the day, we need 50 senators and we need 218 uh, votes in the House and we don't have margins. So we do have to recognize that you push as hard as you can. You leave nobody behind and you get the best possible deal you can um, for the American people. And I think that's what the Progressive Caucus has done. And this week we will vote out Build Back Better out of the House, just as we said we would. And um, I think that will be a huge boon for the country. Well, Pramila, if I can say, if I can call you Pramila, because yes, I'm sorry, please, but we're friends please. now. Yeah. We're friends now. If this is a time of year to be grateful, let me please just say that I am grateful for people like you who are fighting for those who are in the greatest need. Um, thank you for coming. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, personal political. Thank you so much. And we're back. Jaleesa, have you ever been the first to do or achieve something? Yes, many things. I was the first person in my family to go to college in the U.S. Uh, As far as I know, I was the first uh, person to uh, work undocumented on Wall Street. Um, Many first. Many first, I think. You bad bitch. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about being first, why we're great, why they suck, and joining us first, she's a stand-up and podcast host. You can listen to I Love a Lifetime movie that she hosts with Naomi Ekparrigan and her new pod, Megan Fun of Sports. And, 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 she'll be performing at Helium Comedy Club in Indianapolis on November 24th. It's Megan Gailey. Woo! Hi! Hi, 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 hi! Megan Fun of Sports. Where did you come yeah. up with that name? Well, so my co-host, her name is Megan too. And okay. so we just wanted to do like a play on on the Megan. And we're not, you know, the sports world's been a little heavy lately. So we haven't been able to have <laughs> as much fun as we've wanted to. But I feel our fun stage, we're entering into it now. Well, I can't wait. It's going to be you. awesome. Um, Thank you. Next up. She's an activist, writer, executive producer, many varieties of pepper depending on the day. It's Grace Para. Guys, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty spicy in terms of pepper pepperage today. Um, I'm feeling crisp as well. Like crisp pepper. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. A crisp pepper. You did come on yeah. here like it was 3 Hot. p.m. I thought I'm we like, were- it's yeah. <laughs> early. <laughs> I thought we were recording. She was like, hello. I'm like, oh God, I gotta get myself going. This is the curse of being a morning person is I'm fucking ready to go, but I do crash at 2 p.m. every day and I'm useless. Me too. Really? You're Me yeah. too. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Yes. 100%. I'm ready to go. Yeah. I recorded the ads for this show at six o'clock this morning. <laughs> yep. By three o'clock, my slippers will be back on. Yep. Can't yeah. do it. And also, yeah. also with the sun, like it's, you know, it's going away earlier. Uh. I'm a post-lunch crasher. I eat, all the blood goes to digest my food, and then I like to take an afternoon nap. Ooh, so you I know the best? So that used to happen to me so much. And then here's one for you. I was in Afghanistan, and oh. General McChrystal told us how he basically doesn't eat like he because it keeps him like motivated and that he has like the tiniest breakfast and tiniest lunch. And I started having smaller lunches. And I will say it extended my hours from crashing at two to crashing at like 3.30. Oh, God. <laughs> this is just the patriarchy. Right. It's the patriarchy telling us not to eat. I know. I feel like he need, we need to get generals going on Weight Watchers. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a crossover. Okay, you guys. So earlier, Julissa and I were talking about how excited we were to hear that the Harvard Crimson is going to have the first Hispanic president in its 150-year history, which got us to thinking about firsts. Grace, have you ever been a first? Okay, so I, I have I have a story for you guys today because I I was oh, I do I love it. When you I, I, a story. I was so excited about this topic because it's very very near and dear to me, very personal. Um, certainly, some firsts on a sort of uh, local micro scale, like the first 
gal in my family, the first, uh, you know, uh, person, I guess not in the entire family, but like I'm the only girl, I only have brothers. Um, you know, the first, first uh, lady in my family to go to an Ivy League university, some, some wonderful things there. But wow. there was a point um, four or five years ago at this point, I was developing a show at uh, name unknown cable. Uh, it, it was TBS. So don't, what am I trying to be coy? Uh, it was a show at TBS. <laughs> it was it was an amazing opportunity, and this is not an indictment on them at any uh, at all. By the way, they were great, but the show was a late night show that would have had it gone to series, made me the first Latina to have a late night show on. A cable network or a streamer. And then, you know, I'm talking on the scale of like a John Oliver or Sam B or an Amber Ruffin, something like that. And it was, it was a very exciting time in my life. And it, it felt like it was a sort of, um, you know, something, a pinnacle would have been reached had it happened and it didn't happen. Uh, but I found a great therapist. So that's, it all worked out great. Um, but, <laughs> but I realized that at the time, part of what was enticing to me and exciting about the prospect was to be the first to achieve this thing. However, in retrospect, I really feel like I have gone from wanting to be a first to feeling like I don't want to be the first and only. I want to be one of like 10 because in order totally. to to really feel like you don't necessarily have the pressure of so many different voices, you know, with, with the weight of the responsibility to represent all these different people on your shoulders, you get to carve a niche for yourself and you get to be completely independent and think not, okay, I am representing all Latina uh, voices because I'm the only person who has a show on air, uh, but, but instead to focus on what I can bring to the table that's, you know, unique and nuanced to my experience. I will say, however, what is super fucked up is that as soon as we found out the pilot wasn't going to series i was like well good luck to whoever gets it and now it's 2022 <laughs> almost and there still has never been a latina yeah. in late night so that is what's infuriating when there is the potential for you to be the first of something and then years go by and not only were you not the first but nobody was that's fucked up mm-hmm. 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 i agree with that that's fucked up megan what about you I, when Grace mentioned therapy, I was like, I think I was the first in my family to go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking barriers. That's a big step for an Irish Catholic family. Um, And I was, I was the first girl um, on my dad's side in 62 years, which is a really long female route. Um, But everyone else has done really impressive things. But I do think with it, it does come even on that like small family level, it does bring a lot of scrutiny. And my grandmother was definitely way harder on me than she was my cousins who came afterwards. And that's just like Mm. a microcosm of, of what Grace was sort of saying in a larger picture of like, yeah, you just bring, I mean, Kamala is a great example. It's like, Mm -hmm. it was so exciting. And I posted a picture when they clinched the election. And over the past few weeks, people have been going and commenting on that photo again, being like, yeah, but isn't she doing such oh, a God. shitty job now? And like finding it in my feed to to drag her. And I don't really know if that would be happening. I mean, the first female vice president I ever saw was on mm-hmm. Veep, you know, so it's like <laughs> right. fictional yeah. before yeah. it became a reality. And now with this story coming out, you do see it. It feels very difficult and biased and unfair in a lot of ways. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because the first first that really excited me was when I was eight years old. And it was when Geraldine Ferraro, and it goes to what everybody always says, when you see it, you feel like you can be uh-huh. it, right? And when Mondale made her the Democratic vice presidential nominee in 1984, I just remember being so excited. And then I went back last summer during the election because Pfeiffer and I did a podcast on picking a vice president. And I went so deep into that summer, the summer of Ferraro when she was campaigning. And it's so funny because my memory was just so excited. Like I could remember without looking at any magazines, the outfit she was wearing when they held up hands Mm -hmm. in the Minneapolis State Assembly. And you go back in time and they were awful to her. They were terrible to her. It was the first time they were like, "Um, what's her husband do? And why is she a bitch? And the media caused a stir between she and Barbara Bush saying Barbara Bush had called her a bitch. And it was like- To go back and read it. But the funny thing is, is that embedded in that first was another first, which I thought was kind of funny. Not funny, but crazy. 
Um, one of her biggest advisors at the time was Barbara Mikulski, who went on to be U.S. Senator from Maryland. Barbara Mikulski was the first woman elected to the Senate on her own right. She, every, all the other women had replaced oh, dead husbands. Oh, wow. wow. And in 1993... 1993, oh you guys God. think about this. I was Ugh. nearly graduating. No, this was, this is the 93 part. 1993, she was like, you know what? She uh, got all the other women in the Senate and Senate staffers to wear pants because pants were not allowed. And so it was called the Pantsuit Rebellion. And she said, when I walked on the Senate floor in pants, it caused quite a stir. You'd have thought I was walking on the moon. So she made it okay for women to wear pants. So that is my... Favorite first, which upon retrospect was actually kind of fucked up. Jaleesa, what's your favorite first? I feel like I'm still waiting for what will be my favorite first, <laughs> which is when, yeah. you know, we have the first Latino president. Yes. Uh, when we have the yes. first Latina Oscar winner for director, for best picture. Like I'm still waiting for so many firsts, which is kind of what you were talking about, uh, how exciting firsts are, but also how sad they are. Right. Like when I think about like Justice Sotomayor, like I was so excited when she became the first Latina uh, Supreme Court justice. And I'm sort of sitting here wondering how long it's going to take to have another one. Uh Right. Or like when I think about like the Golden Globe, like I think I think uh, America Ferrer was the first Latina to win a Golden Globe. And then it took many Uh years for then Gina uh, Rodriguez to win one. And then we haven't had one since. And so I just think that it takes too damn long it takes too long to get to that first. And then it takes still a really long time for there to be a second and a third and a fourth, et cetera. So I think, you know, as exciting mm-hmm. as first are, there are also reminders of how far behind we are in like every area of society. And when I mean we, I mean Latinos. We're just so far behind, like everywhere. And um, that doesn't mean that I'm not happy when it happens. And I try to remind myself that that moment is special and I should celebrate it and I shouldn't be bogged down by everything else it means. But yeah, I have a a mixed relationship with first because of everything Mm -hmm. they tell us. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, look, Geraldine Ferraro was 1984 and we finally got Kamala Harris in 2020. Lord. (laughs) Yeah. Megan, what's your favorite first? Um, gosh, I, I was like, Listening to this, I was thinking of Coco and how much I loved Coco and how angry I was when they had that weird Olaf short <laughs> oh, yeah. before it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, oh, my. and how there was like good backlash, people being like, why did you have to put this like snowman? There's nothing whiter <laughs> yes, than a yes, snowman. Yes. Um, but I remember in school, I would I did projects on Arthur Ashe, who was I loved tennis and and he was just so remarkable. And seeing Serena and Venus follow in what has been brutal footsteps of his. And I loved Barbara Jordan, um, who became I believe the first woman elected in Texas to uh, represent on a U.S. level, and I cut a Barbie's hair oh to my be gosh. Barbara Jordan and then, like, put like, a little <laughs> outfit on her and made my own uh, Barbie Barbara Jordan that I think is, like, the only Barbie that my mom has kept. That's so cute. Barbie, Barbie, Barbie Jordan. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a first. I have one. Grace? I have one. Yes. I have one. Okay. Let it rip. Uh, it's pretty recent, actually. It was... J-Lo and Shakira doing their halftime show at the Super Bowl. First, I mean, I lost my shit because I love both those artists very much. Uh, Second, of course, for there to be not one but two Latinas leading the Super Bowl halftime show. And uh, for it to be just them. You know, they're not backup. They're not like, you know, one of 14 different artists. Mm -hmm. It's them. It's their songs. They have great Latin American artists who are backing them up, like J Balvin. I thought it was fantastic. There was a period right before I was pitching this um, pilot that I'm working on where in order to, like, amp myself up, up, I would rewatch that clip of that yes. Super Bowl halftime show over and over again because it just made, it got me excited. There was something that was so visceral about there being two Latinas on stage together. Also, those two artists who I don't think had really performed together before. Um, so it was it right. was huge. And I, I know, like, I mean, you know, Megan, you mentioned this, that sp- the sports world is like nuts right now. And it feels strange to love, uh, you know, the NFL. Well, whatever. I do like football. But, you know, it's a, a halftime show. There's a lot in the NFL in general. Like there's a, a corporate powers of play. They're kind of messed up. But 
that show made me really excited. Well, like, isn't it glad they got something right? Yes. That, the, that's yes. one, uh, Grace, that reminds me of everything we're talking about, right? Which like, I was like, had to tune out all of the negativity around them performing, right? Because yes. there was a lot of controversy about like how many black artists had uh, had declined during the Super Bowl and then yeah. like, these this two Latinas and why aren't we standing in solidarity? And like though all those things are true, but I also wanted to be like, can I have this moment? Yes! Like, yes! please, like, can mm-hmm. I please sit here and mm-hmm. just be like so excited for them? Yes. Because, you know, I, I, I followed JLo on social media and like she was, I mean, I don't <laughs> know her at all, but it felt like she was genuinely so happy yes. and excited and like on the brink of tears, like a culmination of her amazing career. Yeah. And I was like, I just want to be happy for her yeah. and for us. And like, mm-hmm. can I not be an activist for one? <laughs> Halftime mm-hmm. show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can mm-hmm. I just be a spectator? And it was so good. It was. I know. I know. To me, it was even crazy that it's like we could have just Shakira mm-hmm. or just Jayla. They, they got enough bops. Yeah. They got enough hits. They, they, they are mega stars. But it was like, oh, we have to put two women together to equal what one maroon five. <laughs> Get the fuck out of Get here. Get the fuck out. I mean, it was really the most energetic wonderful halftime show. I've definitely watched oh, yeah. it more than once. I watched it during COVID once a month. Now I'm <laughs> going to go watch it after we're done recording. You know what? We're going to put it in show notes so that everybody yes, can so watch good. it because <laughs> they should. I will, I, I will leave this for you guys to discover too when you go to YouTube and watch it and look at all the comments. But the number one comment and what's what stuck with me always is something like, I feel like such a proud Latina and I'm a white dude. Everybody, <laughs> everybody walks away feeling so much Latina pride. You're going to love it, guys. You're going to love it. I contend that men should not perform at the halftime Interesting. show because I have seen I have seen Madonna kill it, Beyonce, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, and then men, they're just not even Justin Timberlake. I saw him live. It was terrible. Yeah. And he's at least a dancer. Men should not do it. They sh- they can be background. The only male act that I recall as being memorable, I think was Aerosmith. <gasps> yes. Yeah, and, and Prince. Prince is, is famous. And, right. Did Prince ever do the Super Bowl? Right? Yes. Prince played in the rain, like played Purple Rain in the rain, and that was oh, the right, Super Bowl, right, the Colts one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think Aerosmith had Britney Spears backing backing them, right? Yeah. They yeah. did. Yeah. They did. I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay, Grace, what is it about high-profile firsts, like say the election of Barack Obama, that make it so rare for there to be seconds close behind? Oh, I think that, uh, you know, there's a bit of a novelty. People feel real proud of themselves, especially when they have a hand in being able to, let's say, you know, for instance, elect a Barack Obama. They feel like, okay, our work here is done. And then they take their foot off the pedal, basically. And uh, we stop feeling like it's a consistent battle. We uh, feel like we've done our work for the day and we can go home. And that's when you know that there is a little element of the work that's gone into that first happening that is performative. And that's what's really frustrating, mm-hmm. that it doesn't always feel like it's genuine after that first has, has happened. Um, or rather, that, that maybe the effort for there to be a first was genuine, but the effort for there to be a continual stream of people filling those positions of talent in that particular uh, area, it feels fraught. It feels like it's just more hollow. And I think, I think that comes from a place of, um, you know, giving little tidbits, a ch- chipitos. Is that the right, is that a word that you guys use at home, Julissa? Because my mom uses like little chippy chippies. She said, I think she made it up. I don't think it's I real. think she made it up. <laughs> but she'll say like, ch- chippy chippies is like just, you know, you, you give somebody a little, like little crumbs basically. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, like Greg Sprinkles. Exact Greg Sprinkles. Exactly. It's They're like Greg Sprinkles. Greg Sprinkles is what we get. And we're supposed to be happy with that. But the reality is that it's, it's not enough for there to just be a first. I think we've all kind of insinuated that for various reasons. Um, but yeah, that's what's frustrating about it for me. You know what it also, I think there something that's at play here is that because this person is the first, we expect them to be perfect. And when mm-hmm. they aren't perfect, because nobody can be perfect, then we put any of their mistakes on an entire community. And then we say, well, Look what happened when we had a black president. Look what happened when we had, you know, a Latina whatever. Um, And then people are reluctant, I think, to have a second Mm -hmm. because they put all Mm -hmm. of their mistakes on that whole entire community. And I think that's bullshit because, you know, 
white men are allowed to make mistakes left, right, and center every single day of their lives. And there get to be many of them. And so I think that is something that we need to like break down the cycle of, of how long it takes to get a second. I also think we have a tendency to just go back to that well that gave us the first. Like when you hear people be like, Michelle Obama should run. And it's like, first of all, she would be incredible. Second of all, they've given enough. You know, like there's, it's, we don't have to go back to the Obama family. Like we can find other women in, yes. and other black people in other places. And this happens in Hollywood a lot. Mm-hmm. And it happens mm-hmm. in politics. It's like, let's, maybe we, maybe it shouldn't be four families running the country. All the time. <laughs> yeah. And we should we should spread it out. You're so right to bring up the fact that this happens in entertainment all the time. We've talked about in the heights pretty consistently, you know, uh, here on Hysteria. I know other other crooked pods as well. Uh, it meant so much for so many people. It had to be so much to so many different types of Latinos. And you realize we're not a monolith. One movie mm-hmm. cannot make all of us happy. It shouldn't be uh there shouldn't be that much pressure on any one piece of art. There should be 10 in the Heights. There yeah. need to be 20 yeah. of them. Right. So that every you, year. Lin- yes, exactly. So that Lin-Manuel can do what he does and the, the weight of the world isn't on him. Now, I do think there was some casting issues there for sure. But, you know, and I'm glad that there were certain <laughs> things that were brought up, but I feel like it wouldn't have been so emotionally, uh, you know, horrifying for so many people if there had been other Latino-led major studio movies out at, at any mm-hmm. given time. Mm-hmm. So what firsts have we not seen And who do we want to see be the first? I'll go first. I want there to be a lady president. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd like it to be Katie Porter because I think she could literally take anybody down. It is like, I want someone who is, I also think that when I think about Katie Porter, I also think about Stacey Abrams because I think they have very similar characteristics in that they're utterly unfucking flappable. And I mean, it's like, could you imagine what Katie Porter does to oil executives and anyone in Congress? And like, I don't know, did you guys see the video she did where she was taking down the oil guy and telling him they didn't need more land leases. And she opened up the trunk of her car and was like, see all these bags of rice? Well, every grain of rice represents an acre of the land you already own. And I was like, this bitch could, like she almost couldn't be defeated is how I feel. I mean, of course she could, but she couldn't. So Katie Porter to be president, I think is mine. Megan? I would love for there to be a And I know this has happened, but it's been so long and it's been so many white men. I would love for there to be a female late night host Mm -hmm. on a major network. Um, And I nominate Grace or or myself or (laughs) Naomi Harrigan or Michelle Collins or Quinta Brunson. There's Mm -hmm. like, there is- Oh, give me a Keela. Yes. Give me a Keela. There's so many- and the fact that we've got just all men named Jimmy right now, you know, Dude. it's like <laughs> there's not even a variation in the in the name or the or the tone of the skin that that to me is just like maddening. Grace. Um, okay, I got two for you. One, uh, I'm going to echo my friend Julissa here. I- I'm ready for a Latino president. It will happen in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. I am ready. I am ready. I'm excited. Uh, I feel like it's going to change a lot because I think once we have a Latino president, we're going to see other Latino first. It's going to be a, 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 a ripple effect, you know? Um, it's unfortunate that it feels like it has to start with the, you know, the executive branch, but I do feel like we'll see excellent ripple effects. The other that I'll say, though, is I would like for there to be a time where there is the first time uh, with multiple Latin American family comedies on networks and streamers. Mm. I don't want there to be one just on Mm -hmm. ABC or NBC or CBS, but each of them should have their own. You should be able to go to Amazon and find a modern family that's, you know, Latino-centric, that's different from what you'll see on Apple that has a similar show because every single type of family comedy that's of the, you know, modern family ilk will be told about a different kind of Latin American family. There's just so many different variations within. The problem is when there's only one and that one is forced to be everything to everybody. So that I think will spell a huge shift for us. Julissa, do you have any other first you'd like to see? I mean, everything Grace said, um, (laughs) I I, I add a plus one to that. Um, This is going to sound different, um, but I'm still waiting for uh, Mexico to win its first World Cup. 
Yes! um, (laughs) Given the way that we have played recently, you know, we lost to the US, we lost to Canada. I I mean, I'll just be happy if we make it to the World Cup this year. Um, (laughs) But I do really hope that in my lifetime, uh, Mexico wins a World Cup. That's what I am sitting here hoping and waiting for. I love that. And I think there's going to be a female head coach in one of the major four leagues yes. in yeah. the next 10 years. Yeah. Becky Hammond is going to get the next job. I believe yeah. it. Yes. Yes. And you know what? I feel like the Spurs are is the Spurs are going to have the first female uh, NBA coach because that's how the Spurs do. Go Spurs, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go Spurs. Do you guys think, so one of the first that we're kind of living through right now is Kamala Harris being the first vice president who's a woman. Um, and the media has covered her not great. So one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was doing a little research is like if you look at the breakdown of how much the media covered her background, not her professional background, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. her personal background. 36% of the coverage during the campaign was about where did Kamala come from? Like this, this crazy, crazy shit. Tim Kaine and Mike Pence (laughs) was 5% of their coverage. Wow. 5% of their coverage. Like the, the media for Kamala It was all about her ancestry and not about her achievements and accomplishments. What do we do? What do we do? Why do they do this? Why does the media Mm -hmm. take a first and it's like a pie and then they slice the pie up the way they want? And it's it's not ever really helpful to the person who is being the potential first. Grace, what do you think? Well, it's not about her work even, you know? It's it's about trying to – I think it's just about – it's about trying to, to identify her, to, to create a vocabulary around this thing that has not existed before because it's so unfamiliar. It's, right. you know, so in order to do that, you break it down to its most base parts. And it's like, come on, guys. We we all saw, Megan, I think you mentioned Veep. Somebody mentioned Veep. It's like, we saw, fucking saw, you've seen it. We know what it's like. It's not that hard right. to imagine a woman being a vice president. But because it's the first time that it's officially happened, it feels so novel. Why it's done, I don't, uh, you know, I guess that's why. What we can do to to avoid it. I mean, I don't know. You know, what's tricky about this example is that the, that, um, the, the, the position of being a vice president, you know, at some time, at some points it's been so meaningful and has meant so much. Right. And vice presidents historically have, uh, in some cases been very, uh, useful and utilitarian. And then sometimes there's just sort of like a, a stand-in kind of, and they haven't really right. done that much. And I think what's tricky is trying, is there are people who feel like that's what Kamala is when the reality is that she is so capable and she's so very, right. uh, you know, ready to be there that I, I hate seeing people break her down like that. Mm-hmm. But the position of VP is one that's sort of been, you know, fraught with that, that binary. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think there's a need to, to like, they think they need to humanize these people to us. And so they get sort of these borderline human interest stories about where they came from. And you kind of saw it with Buttigieg too, of like, oh, wow. Good point. How do, yes, how do yes. the gay man get here of like really good point. people that are not used to seeing gay people or women or people of color in positions of power need to be spoon fed it. And I actually don't think they do, but I think it's the media's tendency to spoon feed it in a way that's like, how do we make this palatable for my almost 70 year old parent? You know, like yeah. it's, it, right. it's a like dumbed down version when it's like, just give people that they're the candidate. And if they want to know how they got here and what their background is, have Oprah do it or, you know, have someone right. else and have it not be part of their political coverage. Well, and you're right, Megan, because the coverage of Kamala started much as Mayor Pete's did around their announcement to be president. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's like Kamala's just continued once she had been selected as VP. But you're totally right. They were two firsts. Yeah. And the way that the media talked about them was like what my friend Caroline Chang used to call a hairbrushing. Yeah. It was like, we're just going to tell you <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what we think yep. you should know. Yeah. Jaleesa, what do you think? You know, I think that when it comes to like 
Barack Obama and Kamala Harris and the scrutiny about where are they really from. I mean, that's just yeah. xenophobic racism, uh, trying to discredit that these people are in fact American, that they're even eligible to be in these positions of power. Um, and it's unfortunate. You know, I also think that, you know, going back to the whole thing about how difficult it is to be a first because everybody's expectations is on you. You know, I think both with Kamala and, and, and Obama, people were disappointed that it was them and not someone who was a more progressive black person. Right. Um, and, right. and, and like, I, I agree um, to some degree, but I also think it's important that they're the first and it's important that that glass ceiling has been broken um, because then we can have, you know, a more progressive version of them and even a more progressive version of right. them. Um, and they don't have to be everything to everybody. Um, but yeah, I think that when you can't scrutinize somebody's work, then you go and scrutinize their person. That's a great point. And on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with Sanity Corner. Welcome to the part of the show where we restore our sanity, but first, some housekeeping. The latest episode of Offline with John Favreau features an intimate interview with international soccer superstar Megan Rapino. Megan shares her personal experience managing the added pressures that elite athletes live with in today's extremely online world and why online trolls don't stop her from using social media to push for progressive agenda. New episodes of Offline drop every Sunday in the Pod Save America feed. All right, the house has been kept. So here we are with some much needed sanity because sanity is always in order. Megan Gailey, what's your sanity corner? <laughs> okay, after we thoroughly dragged the NFL, I am here <laughs> I am here to promote their most useful propaganda tool. Okay, so for the first time ever, they are doing a Hard Knocks, which is an HBO documentary <gasps> series in season. So they usually do um, training camp, and it's four episodes leading up to the season, but they're doing an in-season first ever, and my beloved Indianapolis Colts have been chosen as the team, which is horrifying and really <laughs> scary, but I cannot wait. It um, premieres the 17th. So if you're hearing this tomorrow and listen, you do not have to like football. What Hard Knocks is about is about <laughs> really cute kids, fun wives, family members, food. Like it really is propaganda. But as long as you go into it, knowing that you are being lied to, that is totally fun and fine. And the kids are <laughs> so cute. And I'm just really, really excited to see the team that I love featured on a national stage. I mean, that's exciting. You've sold me. I mean, I think I've actually watched one before, yeah. but I'm into it. Yes. I love Hard Knocks. It's never been about a team that I particularly love. And oh. every season, <laughs> I'm still thoroughly obsessed. Yeah. So I forgot that they were doing the in-season uh, Colts. This, this is going to be great. I can't wait. I'm excited to watch. <laughs> Jaleesa, what about you? Okay. My um, sanity corner has been hemphified on uh, <gasps> Netflix uh, it came back for a second season and it is, it is just like funny and um, heart-wrenching sometimes, but then it's like funny and heartwarming again. It's just, it's such an amazing show. It's about these three cousins that are, well, the first season was about these three cousins that were trying to save their grandpa's taco shop in Boyle Heights. And um, this season, uh, there's new characters and new love stories and it's so beautifully shot. And I just love everything about it. And I have been really restraining myself from not binge watching all of it in one sitting because then it will be over and then I will have no more Hentified to watch until the third season comes out. And so I have been watching like two episodes and then forcing myself to shut off the TV because, <laughs> you know, I want to have more for tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. I have to do that with a lot of shows now. Like, especially the ones, it's like I get really mad when they drop them once a week because I'm like, I want more. But then I, I think I actually do need that kind of person rationing my, I need the networks <laughs> rationing my television for me so that I don't watch all of Succession or the morning show or anything else that actually increases my anxiety um, all at once. Okay, so I'm going to keep with the TV theme. And you guys, my sanity corner is that fucking... 
Christine has finally left Cody Brown on Sister Wives. I have been watching this show for so many years. And it's like the one show that my husband's like, the fuck are you watching? And I was like, I I am enthralled by their dynamic. I always thought Mary was going to be the first to leave. And part of why I've kept watching is because Cody Brown is such a dickhead, megalomaniacal asshole. that I'm like, someone has to leave him. So anyway, Christine's leaving him. The new season starts this week. I've been following her journey on Instagram and I'm really excited for it. <laughs> and I heard Cody went full QAnon. And so I'm wondering if that ended <gasps> up being what broke her finally. Do they get Cody into that on the show? Cody went QAnon. Well, he yeah. was like definitely COVID denying-ish oh, a bit wow. at the end of the last season. Um, I just can't, I can't wait. I can't wait. Grace? I feel like you have a good sanity corner. Well, I'll tell you what, ladies. I am currently wearing my sanity corner. And here's a little backstory for you. Um, I grew up in Texas. Texas is a warm climate. You don't wear socks that frequently in Texas. And growing up, I didn't really like socks. Didn't like what they did for my feet. Felt they were always a little bit sweaty. Just not into them. But recently, I've discovered smart wool socks. And this is not a hashtag paid ad. (laughs) Truly, it's not. But I have discovered these socks and I wear them every day because my husband likes to keep it a crisp 33 in the house every day. Uh, And so I have to bundle up as many of us are wont to do. And I put these on my feet and I'm telling you guys, smart wool socks, they will change your life. This is in L.A., Mind you, I mean, and it's warm over here. So for all of you who are listening in from places where it's much colder, get you some smart wools. It is worth the investment. They're so toasty. Alyssa, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I love them because here's the thing. I have like short calves. And so a lot of times socks are too tight because Mm. they're meant for someone's lower calf and they're literally hitting my mid calf. And smart wool, it like the socks stay up, but they don't, they don't leave you like, if you then take your clothes off and you go put on your workout outfit, you don't have like that band. Uh-huh. It's like, yes, oh, yeah. your legs are too fat for your socks. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't make but your feet to the sweat? Same point, no, no, they don't. Okay, no, great. no, no. Sweat. And I have hot foot, you guys. Yeah. I'm always barefoot. And these, they're like, I got to say, and if Smart Wool doesn't sponsor us after this, fucking I mean. shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. And it's sock season. Like this yeah, is what people are season. buying for Christmas. Yeah, it's worth it. It's such a worthwhile investment. Just to just trust, just trust us. Get you some smart wool. You guys, if you're not sane after listening to our sanity corners, I don't know what <laughs> we can do for you. Um, thank you to my co-host, Julissa Arce, Megan Gailey, and Grace Parra for joining today. Thank you to Congresswoman Jayapal. Thank you all. And there will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Nia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 